What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 11 of the Mishmash Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of sitting down with my good friend Brian Monzo to talk music. Brian and I are both diehard listeners of music from any era, but the time that we love the most is definitely the late 90s and early 2000s. Most of our favorite bands hail from that span, and many of those are still putting out phenomenal music today. Aside from looking back at some of the best that the turn of the millennium had to offer, we also look ahead to the ever-changing landscape of the music industry, particularly where the influence of artificial intelligence is sure to come into play. I'll be taking a deeper dive into that topic in a future episode, but for now, please enjoy the great talk that Brian was kind enough to have with me this morning. I'm here with my buddy Brian Monzo to, uh, to talk music. We started this conversation during track season in the fall, I believe, right? I think we've been having this conversation via text for years, to be honest with you. That, well, that's very true. Now it's just nice to have it vocally and recorded. Yeah, absolutely. So w- the first topic I wanted to talk about was something that's been popping up all over the, the music sites that I check out, and it's AI and its impact on music. I don't know if you're familiar with Rick Beato, but he's got a, a great YouTube channel, and he just released a, a video about it. And a lot of people are freaking out about AI and the potential impact on the music industry and on artists. He had a really wild take about looking really far ahead to the future for the implications, not just for the artists, but also, again, for the industry itself. Any thoughts on AI and, and all, all that stuff? Well, I see it pop up not just in music, but in real world every day, right? So you're seeing reports of it maybe hurting people in the workforce in years to come. And personally, I invest in it, so I have some sort of uh, uh, interest in it. I certainly don't want to see anybody lose any work because of it. But as far as it musically... I know they can reproduce voices, right? And that's that's one of the angles. Um, I recently saw, I'm assuming this was AI, I recently saw a video of Kurt Cobain singing Everlong. And that stuff I don't mind, right? That's fine. I, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Kind of depressing, to be honest with you. Uh, what I would never want to see, and I'm sure somebody's going to do it and try and capitalize on it, is a new Nirvana song that Kurt Cobain didn't write. You know what I'm saying? Like a song that they wrote, but I'm going to have Nirvana sing it or, or do it. So I, I would never want to see that. I, I would think that would hurt a little bit their legacy, which I don't know if that's possible, but like they have their songs they wrote, they have their albums, they have their memories. I don't want to see anything new that Kurt didn't write being you know sung by Kurt. Cover songs, whatever. It's cover songs. Everybody likes cover songs. So as long as we don't go into uh, Fall Out Boy all of a sudden writing songs for Nirvana or some people we never heard of. You know, I, I have no problem with that. I know we talked about this, the, you know, the Chester singing Slipknot songs. And I saw some people calling it creepy. You know, that was kind of the adjective. I thought it was cool, a little depressing more than anything else, because you're like, it kind of brings you back like, God, he was good. You know, <laughs> so my only issue would be if they start reproducing songs we never heard of with other people. But as far as cover songs, I think it's interesting. It's fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, and it sounds really good, like <laughs> really good. Well, the Chester one, especially, right? Like, Bother is my favorite Stone Sour song. I've probably heard it a thousand times. And I've never thought of it outside of the context of Corey Taylor's vocals. So to hear it, and it was weird, too, because I had just picked up the the 20th anniversary Meteora re-release. And so that had legitimate new, new old new songs from, you know, Chester that featured vocals he recorded back in, in the early 2000s. And it was a weird feeling because hearing those songs, like Lost or Fighting Myself and all those... 
it had more of a bittersweet sort of resonance to it. But I have to agree that like the the cover of Bother, it was sort of creepy. First of all, there were a couple artifacts, like, you know, audio artifacts that you could tell it, it wasn't a legitimate like live recording or whatever. But I think it was more just the concept of it. Like, holy, like this really, really sounds like Chester. And he never sang this. And I think that's probably what blows people's minds. Yeah, if if he hadn't passed away and you just played that for me, I would not have questioned if it was real or not, you know? So, you know, it's so different now because like when you and I were growing up, we'd go buy CDs and our music was basically the radio or MTV, right? And now it's people can create their own. Look what we're doing. We're just recording something in, you know, in a small studio here. And that's just me and you talking. People have higher tech stuff where they create stuff like cover songs and stuff like that. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. You know, it's, there's a future for it and people are going to be into it. And the younger generations, you know, going to have a lot of fun with it. Well, that's just it. I think it's also, it's not just the content itself, right? It's how content is consumed. So like you said, when we were growing up, we were basically fed whatever we listened to. We, we were told, you know, they played it on the radio. That was it. There really wasn't much of an option. If you wanted to make, you know, your own mixtape, you literally had to sit there, you know, with a cassette in the stereo and, and wait for it. Now, it's also the quality of it. It's so pervasive. Like you said, like any kid, like even our kids can probably put stuff together. They learn it so quickly, the technology, and it's it's pretty good. It's pretty comparable to what used to be, you know, studio relegated stuff. And that was it. But the other thing, too, is like I feel like the YouTube music scene, right, where there was a lot of these like YouTube guitarists or content creators that were already doing stuff like this. It was in the style of I'm sure like there's a guy named Anthony Vincent. There's a couple of different creators that do a lot of like band A singing, you know, a a song in the style of band B, that kind of thing. And so. Even now, there's a guy, Nick Nocturnal, who just released a couple of different songs where he just like literally programmed it in. And it sounded exactly like a Slipknot song. The, the latest one was Avenged Sevenfold. For the Avenged Sevenfold one, he went out and he worked with another YouTube creator who's basically like, I mean, the guy sounds exactly like M Shadows. So when you listen to this song, same, same as before with the Chester thing, you could reasonably think that this was a song that this band put out that they have no connection to whatsoever. So it's already, I guess the groundwork was already there. I think the issue is more from you know like a copyright issue like where does that line start you know like th- did you see, see the whole drake and the weekend song and all that yeah i was just gonna mention that i know drake had an issue with a song that you know someone artificially put in his voice and uh i didn't see where it went but i'm sure he wouldn't be happy with that and i'm sure a lot of bands wouldn't be happy about that well the crazy part with the drake one is the reaction to it was unbelievable like people were freaking out and a lot of people were saying this is better than stuff that he's put out recently and that's an interesting uh an interesting situation because now you, you have whether it's the record labels or whoever it is that owns you know the rights to the music do they own the rights to the person's voice you know and, and what's done with it it's it's a fascinating direction and again that's what rick beato sort of went into where there's going to be you know a, a label that signs drake and then another label that has drake ai you know and maybe they can both put out content it's just i think it obviously becomes an issue only in terms of like concerts and live performances and stuff but to be honest do you really think that most people even care you know like if it's a real person up on the stage the average music listener like i'll tell you what there'll be a band or a group or whatever that'll embrace that and be like yeah, if I can make money off that and I'm going to have to do anything, like, I don't, you know, I'll take 10% or whatever or whatever. I could totally see them being like, use my voice, fake my voice, do songs, 
let's just cut a deal, you know? So I wouldn't be surprised if that's something we, we do see in the future. And isn't it the gorillas that it's just like an animated, like nobody knows who they are and their concerts and stuff. It's all on a screen anyway. So I, I really don't think people would care. And then that's not even talking about like the hologram, the holographic stuff like Tupac. You know, I know people are talking about, was it Dio, I guess, had one. Uh, so, you know, again, and then there's a the whole moral thing. It, it definitely gets crazy. I worry because it's gotten so much tougher for bands to make money just in general. Like COVID really whacked, you know, the, the profits because now you've got these venues that are, you know, jumping in and, and they're starting to creep in on like the merchandise, you know, cut. And it's, it's just so much harder for, for bands to create. I, I, I would say one of our favorite bands is Lit. I'm assuming thousand percent, and the fact that those guys are still going is is amazing. But there's not many bands that are starting now that can kind of rely on that legacy. And even lit, like they're still going to their hardcore fans. No one else knows they're going still. No one else knows. Well, so it's funny. I was thinking a lot about them recently. Somebody was talking about one hit wonders, and I know this is maybe parsing language a little bit, but. I, I cringed when they when they mentioned Lit as being a one hit wonder. I think it was on Sirius actually on, on like nineties the nineties online or one of those channels. And I was just like, oh, really? First of all, if anything, they have two really well known hits between My Own Worst Enemy and, and Miserable. But like, they had so many other like yeah, really Ziploc good songs. was a single, right? Uh, looks like they were right. Was this? I guess no one really knows that song. But no, they definitely had a hand. Over my head was a big hit. I'm sure it was on the charts at one point. But yeah, I mean, after, you know, the Black Album, like, you know, the list of that self-titled album, their their fame went away. But I think their fame went away when kind of like rock music went away. I mean, rock music has taken such a hit, unfortunately. And it's just, you know, there's no rock radio stations, you know, at least, I mean, really isn't. And even the ones that there are mix in non-rock, you know what I'm saying? They're more like today's modern music and... So I think, it, like, I listen to some of the newer Lit songs, and they have a new album that came out last year. That album came out, you know, 10 years ago. They actually put out a country album in between. You know, I listen to some of those songs, and I'm like, man, if it was 1999, this would be one of the biggest songs going. And that's just, that's a shame with what's going on with today's music. But even, like, for example, they have a, their album that came out last year has got a song, The Life That I Got, which is, they cleaned it up. They have a clean-up single that no one's ever heard, I'm sure. But if that's, it was like 1999, that would be like the number one song on MTV Spring Break. And so that's just, it's kind of disappointing that that's the direction things have gone. But you're right. They're much more than a, a one hit wonder. In fact, a, a friend of mine put out a video of him in Dashville two or three nights ago at a concert. You know, he took the video of them playing My Own Worst Enemy. But the crowd is huge and they're having a great time. And it's, you know, so they're still out there. But look, I, I want to think of a one hit wonder. I think a Space Hog. Like that's a one hit wonder. You know, I know they had a couple other songs, but like. No one knows any of their other songs. Was it just Meantime? Yeah. In the Meantime was like their one, or uh, Stroke Nine, you know, with uh, Little Black Backpack. I can't name another Stroke Nine song. I have the album. I still can't name another song. So those are one-hit wonder. Lit is not a one-hit wonder. Right. That That's what I thought. Like, so I don't know if I had mentioned this to you, you know, in our text or whatever, but I realized I, I've accumulated just a ton of music. I don't know if you remember BMG back in the day, like the yeah. CD club. So like I mean, 40 I, albums um, for a dollar and yeah. then... You got to buy five at regular price. Right. right. And I mean, I cleaned up with those and I had just accrued so much music. I realized I didn't listen to like, a, I probably listened to like a percentage of it. And so I started, I, I just got it all organized on the computer, started at uh, at A and started working my way through. And some of the albums were surprises, but man, some of them were so bad. I don't know if you remember OMC with How Bizarre. That's one of the bands, like everybody knows that song. I could not tell you another song on that album. And to me, that's like a legitimate, that's a real true one hit wonder. You know who, a really good band that I think 
maybe they're not a one-hit wonder or two-hit wonder. How about the Wallflowers? Oh, they were. So my <laughs> only issue with them was live. And maybe Jacob Dylan back in the 90s was a different energy level than what he had, you know, in the 2000s and the 10s when I saw him. They were so, so good. And again, they had a couple of songs on the Bringing Down the Horse album. And then it's the popularity started to sputter, but the quality of the stuff they put out didn't. I mean, they, they, they put out, I think, five more albums after that. And they were all really, really, really good stuff. And that album was so hot when it came out. Like, I remember they were featured on, you know, they did all the VH1 MTV shows and One Headlight was everywhere, you know. Um, and I, you know, you because of his name, you'd figure they were going to be the next big thing. And they, I don't want to say they fizzled because clearly they didn't. They produced stuff, but their pop, I don't know what it was. Just the coverage of them went the opposite. But they were a great band and they, and they really... You know, I, I almost look at them and be like, who came out after them? It's like almost like Train became the Wallflowers. Like what the, the fame that Train has had is kind of what the projection I had for the Wallflowers. Kind of like, not, not like real heavy rock, but catchy rock, good music. Surprised they didn't take off to be in like this band. We're already inducting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and considering one of the best modern rock bands. I, I guess the way I would describe it, like obviously there's all different kinds of genres that you can go with, you know, alt rock or whatever, but... I think what really resonated in that like late 90s, which for me, like the 90s is my all time favorite decade of music, especially the latter like five or six years. And I feel like a lot of those bands, you know, had like electric guitar components, but you could take just about any one of those songs and play it on an acoustic guitar. And I, I remember like early on, like finding out about CD singles and stuff and like they would have an acoustic performance of something. And it just in a lot of cases, like pardon me from Incubus, it's almost like a completely different song, like they can stand on their own. And so a lot of those bands were like that. I didn't even find out. I, I, maybe you knew this already, but do, do you remember Sixth Avenue Heartache yeah. from that album? That I just was their got, first single. I didn't realize that Adam Duritz from Counting Crows is the guy that does the backing vocals on that. Oh, right. I, just, I didn't know that either. And then it's one of those things that once you know, now you can't unhear it when you listen to it. Yeah, no. And, you know, speaking of Incubus, that's another band that you were into too, right? Yeah. So Lit and Incubus are two examples of bands that managed to change their sound. Now, I know Lit did it basically for that one album as a country thing, but it worked. Like, it was Lit. It wasn't Lit, you know, masquerading as a country band. Like, that's just the music they wrote, and I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal. I know a lot of the original fans of Incubus hated their shift from that, like, funk fusion metal thing they were doing. Personally, Make Yourself and Morning View are two of the only perfect albums I've ever heard, like, start to finish. But towards the end they suffered this weird thing where they just got into this like boring generic rock. Like I don't even know if you call it rock. It's almost like elevator music. You well, know? even their albums before that where they had, you know, a certain shade of green and all these really funky rock songs where he's screaming and it's a lot of like slap bass and uh, they were really a, a unique sound. Those albums that you mentioned were, were tremendous and they were more of what you expect out of a, a good rock band. But yeah, they changed their sound almost three times. And same thing with Lit because Lit, was a really heavy band when they came out like their first album uh trip in the light fantastic sounds nothing like a place in the sun in fact it's almost unlistenable at times because they were just a a bunch of california kids that were you know the the time of that music wasn't like i don't want to call pop rock but like catchy rock it was like slam the guitar scream uh garage rock and they you know they had to change their sound to be more popular and it worked for them and they liked what they were doing i heard a podcast where you know they were struggling to get shows and then they they just came out with you know he wrote 
AJ wrote the lyric, you know, um, it's no surprise my ammo was enemy as he couldn't fill up his gas tank. Like he had no money to get gas. Oh, and man. like he wrote that on like, a, on like his car. And then his brother was just jamming and he came up with the intro to that song. And they were like, we're going to put something together here. And the first time the record company heard that intro, they were like, this is going to be a hit. They nailed it. And they nailed it. And that, now I wonder if like, pardon me, when they heard that, they were just like, that funky rock is fun. It's good. This is going to be our moneymaker. And they clearly did a great job of uh, transitioning into that band. I mean, even that album, uh, Make Yourself, is that title's track is awesome. You know, so and then the next couple albums were solid, too. They lost me with the, you know, mega maniac. They just didn't sound as good to me. But those albums would drive and they're legendary albums. There's no topping them for them. Right. And it's the same for me with like Shinedown. Their first three albums, again, like top to bottom, were just unbelievable. The Sound of Madness, too, was that was I didn't think they could top the energy of the previous two. That one was ridiculously good. And then they just sort of fell off a cliff. I don't, and it wasn't even like they were really big for a while. Yeah. And, and the, the sound just, again, generic is the only word I can think of. It wasn't like a sellout thing. They weren't trying to, you know, follow the popular trends. Although in some of the more recent ones, you can kind of hear, you know, it, it, I, you wonder if a guy like Max Martin had something to do with, you know, some of those songs, obviously he had nothing to do with it, but just in terms of the, the vibe itself. And it's weird with how that happens with some bands. So my issue with Shinedown is there. There, you're right. Those albums are like I, I, I dare use a great song and the Crow and the Butterfly. Those are just unbelievable. You know. Um, so I was watching him do a show and he was one thousand percent lip syncing. Really? But yeah. Because listen, if you're gonna lip sync, don't make it sound like the album version. And he was one thousand percent lip syncing. I dare you. And like, look, that's a hard song to sing. It's a lot of high pitch sound. A lot of you know, he's got to hit those and maybe he's got a voice issue. Maybe he was sick that day or whatever, but you can't lip sync your songs in concert, you know? And that, that t- honestly, it was like an almost like I'm never going to listen to him again now. Like, I don't know why that bothered me. I understand some bands suck live. Everclear, one of my favorite bands of all time, is the worst live band I've ever seen. Eve Six, another one. Horrible live band. But at least they're playing, you know what I'm saying? You can't go out there and fake it. Well, and Eve Six, a fu- Eve Six is a funny one because they opened for Everclear over at the Stone Pony, and I remember like they were the highlight of the night. Like poor Art couldn't even hit the notes, like, and they weren't even like the high high notes. They were just you know like the the mid range ones. When I saw him, he wasn't even singing; he was talking the lyrics. That's- Essentially, what he was doing was talking the lyrics out. Yeah, and it's such a shame too because on on the albums they sound great and there's such great energy you know for them. Eve Six again is just kind of like. A, a weird funky sort of thing in terms of like their performances so i had it up i'm not being rude i'm not looking at my phone no, 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 but no. i'm trying to pull up stuff so I, I wanted to talk about everclear because talk about bands that had like a high and then kind of faded to like outside of like they're really big fans so obviously they had the album with santa monica and then they put out uh so much for the afterglow which to me is almost my a to z perfect album like such a great album and then they put out some stuff after and I think their fans liked it. Like, I really liked. But they have that Songs from an American movie, the second version of it. Such a hard rocking album. There are so many good rock songs that I can't believe Everclear wrote. There's no way they could perform them live. But they were so, like, you know, overwhelmed. All these songs are just, they're so, like, it's almost, I almost said to myself, like, if, if they were just bigger, this would have been, like, one of the best rock albums ever if people just appreciated it. And I don't know, again, where the, the stock dropped for them. I just might have been the interest in that kind of music that dropped because, you know, the generation started listening to MTV and then all the hip hop and Britney Spears and all that, you know. So 
And that was around, that album came out in 2000, the back-to-back duel, where the first album was almost like, you know, not country, but a little more like banjo-y. And then the second album was really hard and heavy. And intentionally, they said that we're going to have this really like light, you know, melody album. And this is the second album, we just turned up the guitars. And they did a tremendous job. Nobody knows that album. And I just think it's like, what a shame for like rock fans that if, if you were just a generic rock fan, you know, you know, Santa Monica, you got to listen to that album. It is such a great sound. I was listening to it yesterday. I was walking the baby around. Like I'm sitting there, I'm like screaming, like, you know, uh, singing uh, Overwhelmed and, and uh, all these great songs. And, you know, it's just no one knows it. No one knows these albums even exist. And they put out a couple songs after that. They're, I mean, they're kind of like corny, but they're great Everclear songs. They had a Volvo driving soccer mom, yeah. Hater, like all these songs that sound like Santa Monica version of Everclear that nobody knows about. I think it was 2015, maybe. They came out with another album that, for me, is their heaviest. I think it's Black. It's the new Black. And I remember hearing, like, drop tuning for the first time and just being blown away because it didn't it didn't sound like them in terms of just, like, how heavy it was, but it was them. Like, it, And it made me sad because it was, it was just so great, and I love high energy shows like i want to see, I, I go to see slipknot because of the energy corn or whatever and i knew i'm like oh not only are they never going to play these songs live but even if they try to it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be there but that that's the bummer of it is there's so much great music out there and like quality stuff you know we're, we're not talking about you know like you said britney spears pop stuff or whatever which you know listen if that's what you're into that's great but there's more complexity i think especially with so much for the afterglow like dude that lyrical content, I mean, he's bleeding onto the, the page that he wrote those lyrics on. And I think that's what makes it so relatable for people. You just don't see stuff like that anymore. You know, even in country music, it, that's probably the worst. In Nashville, there's literally rooms filled with people writing. It, it's not even writing music. It's like, it's a formula and they're just, you know, taking different components and putting it in. Art from Everclear clearly has had a depressing life at times. You know, drug use early married divorced he sings a lot about his divorce obviously that bothers him so you could tell that when he writes songs lyrically he's really getting it out of the system and you don't really you don't see that anymore i mean i don't think you do at least in these days it's just about singing about getting drunk and having a good time and blah 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 and personal experiences you know it'll be interesting i know foo fighters have a new album coming out they put out a new single two weeks ago i don't know i haven't read when those songs were written but i'm gonna venture to say a lot of the lyrics are post Taylor, and I'm going to be really interested to see how much Dave wanted to get into it. I mean, we might have to wait another album because he might have already had these songs written and done, but it's going to be interesting to see how much he gets into it. Yeah, so he had, it's funny, there were two books that came out, I think within a few months of each other. One was written by his mom about being like a rock star mom, and then he had his own I guess it was a memoir. And if you've never read any of his writing, like he's actually a phenomenal writer. Forget about music, just writing in general. Big barbecue and, guy too. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> I, I would, that, honestly, I would love to have a drink with him and some barbecue. And he was just recently, I think in California, where he cooked like six days straight or something for some homeless shelters. Really, really, really cool stuff. But reading in that book, it was wild to, to sort of learn, you know, sort of the inner workings of how he handled losing Kurt and almost losing Taylor the first time to, to the heroin overdose and just seeing how he handled grief, right? And it's really, grief is just one of those things that, that everybody goes through, everybody handles it differently. And it's wild to see how music, he had to get away from music at first. He couldn't even think about it, but he, it was like a black hole, like he couldn't escape it. And so the gravity of the whole situation pulled him in. And that's when he started recording the songs that became the first Foo Fighters, Foo Fighters album with Linkin Park. It's interesting because we're coming up on six years now since Jester's death. 
Mike's put out some music on his own, but it's sort of interesting that as a group, they still haven't found their way forward, you know, and if you follow anything, you know, on social media or, or their channels and stuff like, at least for him, like, it's still a raw nerve and it probably always will be. And it's interesting because you think of Kurt Cobain, you think of Chester Bennington, there's not many guys bigger than that. And it's, it's wild to see how different people, you know, the, the different approaches that people take to, to that grief. I think if you look at like what the Stone Temple Pilots did post Scott, they actually had Chester singing for him. Uh, I thought that was a great way to honor him. Uh, he sounded just like him, so by the way. I don't think anybody could fill in for him on any Linkin Park albums, and it would even make any sense. So I think it's tough to try and... Same thing with Kurt. It would be impossible to try and have someone try and do that. But yeah, it's really a shame. Um, but, you know, their, their stuff is so unique and so different they were just they were at another level and they were able to you know even while adjusting their sound i mean the the minutes to midnight album sounds so much different than the earlier albums hybrid theory meteora but it was still good and their other albums really got funky but they still had good songs and it would have been interesting to see where they would be these days you know with everything that's gone on politically and blah 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 and you know would they have reverted back to their older sound or you know their angry sound it wasn't even angry just more like emotional but he's one of those guys that there's no like i know they were like a two vocal group there's no more lincoln park i mean that's you know it's just the, you know that's just that's just what it is you could have probably gone on with stone temple pilots with multiple singers filling in to pay scott's honor you can't do that with lincoln park uh, agreed. And the, the latest guy, it's funny, right, how like sort of intertwined everything is. So now the latest guy, Jeff Goot, that they brought in for Stone Temple Pilots is the new like permanent guy, was in a band called Dry Cell back in the early 2000s. I don't know. You probably remember. Did you ever hear any of their stuff? I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, they were they were it was just the time that screwed them because they they recorded. Oh, now Disconnected was the name of the album. And they recorded it in 2002. They were as close to Linkin Park as any band I've ever heard. And that was a problem because they were signed to the same label. And, you know, they saw the Golden Goose in Linkin Park and decided that they were going to squash that. So that, that connection between Stone Temple Pilots and Chester and Jeff, it, it was just kind of wild. And it's not just that he's irreplaceable vocally. I think what the issue is with that band is that presence. You can't feel that presence on stage every time they're up there. Like, I don't know if you watched the uh, that performance they did a couple months later in, uh, in L.A. Yeah. It was, it was just, it was weird. It was weird not seeing him up there. And that was just me watching it. I can only imagine what it was like for them. And so, like, that's, but but to me, like, you could still have the same guys just create something new, new you know, rebrand it, new, new direction, you know, maybe throw in some of the old songs where it's just Mike or, you know, something that he can sing to as a cover. But I agree, like, that's, th those shoes are too big to fill. With, and with the Foo Fighters, though, I do wonder who's going to fill in for, for Taylor. There's a lot of rumors about it being his son and all these different people. So that'll be interesting to see, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I don't know when the new album was recorded and if Taylor's even on, you know, I'm assuming Dave did all the drums. You know, he probably, if I think if it were up to him, even on the, the <laughs> on the recorded every album, he would have done every instrument because he's like a crazy music guy like that. It's got to be a real tough call for them because like once you replace him, he's like really gone. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it can't be easy. I mean. I understand the idea of it being a son. I just, that's that's a lot to ask of him. Like, that's a lot. I mean, it'd be great. It'd be cool. I mean, his dad and Dave would tell you Taylor's like the greatest drummer he ever worked with. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think their news, what I what makes the Foo Fighters, to me, the best modern rock band 
of all time is that their new song, Rescued, you could put it on a 2005 album of the Foo Fighters song and it would sound, exa- you know, it's just they have a certain sound. They can change the sound when they want to, but it sounds like a, it's, it could fit, it can go on uh, In Your Honor and I would think that's the biggest song from In Your Honor. That's admits, you know, they're so good like that to just kind of stick to, they can mix it up, but their bread and butter is rock music and good rock music and not rock music that sounds like any other band. It sounds like them. And you know what? I remember there was a special that they, you know, they did like a DVD or something like that. And they talked about how, you know, in this era, like you and I were talking about of kids being more into hip hop and pop music, they were always the band X to go to MTV and do the, the music awards, the movie awards. So there were still some, you know, even though like they weren't, you know, rock music was, was on the lower of the, you know, the depth chart they were still always invited to be one of the headliners, you know, and that's, you know, that had, you know, that's a hell of a, a way to be honored as a, as a band knowing that, okay, maybe our brand of music isn't where it once was, but we are the face of that brand and they are. Yeah. And it's funny because Dave mentions a lot about how he doesn't feel like they've written their hotel California or their Bohemian Rhapsody yet. Personally, I think it's ever long and well, I, I'm sure on some level he, probably believes that but at the same time i understand why like why would you want to say but our best music is behind us well he's you know? actually said the best song he ever wrote was times like these like that's what he thinks is the best song he ever wrote it's up there i agree well so it's funny that's that's a perfect song to use as an example here so a lot of their earlier stuff sounded similar not not the same it wasn't like they had a formulaic approach it was great but if you notice the the two albums that came out so you had in your honor which was such a brilliant idea right because they had released i think three or four albums at that point that had very similar sounding stuff and then they went in a slightly different direction the electric stuff was great the acoustic stuff i think was was what really shined there and then they had another album or two where the the sonic complexity of it just really ratcheted up like the songs still sounded like foo fighter songs but it wasn't just you know simple power chords or you know one catchy riff like there was a lot more going on they had piano in some of the songs and then they did wasting light which is probably like if, if there's an album that comes close to the color and the shape it's got to be that just all the songs on there were were great yeah so that album to me has the bridges burning intro and outro like to me could be their own songs like so for them to you know and they really brought back the rock there was a funny thing that they did there was a a special uh, you know i think it's probably the same dvd i was talking about a minute ago where it shows them recording that album it's kind of like the end of that dvd is that the conclusion of that dvd is is the recording that album at dave's house in virginia and he tells a funny story where, you know, he plays guitar and it's just kind of like he just plays the guitar. And then Chris plays guitar and it's very melodic and he's great. And then Pat plays the guitar and it's just like, <laughs> and they show a video of him and Taylor. And as soon as Pat hits the guitar, they both jump because it's just so loud. It's, you know, they're just such a, a great, well, you know, they brought Pat back and, you know, they're, they're, they, they really are, I think, the marquee and the face of, of modern rock music. And to me... I don't like getting into this argument of the best bands of all time, but you know, and there are people like, oh, they're so much better than Nirvana. It's you can't make that, you know, you can't even have that comparison. But I mean, if you're making a Mount Rushmore, I hate that comparison of, of music of of bands, you know, right with the Beatles, right with some of these other great bands. I think I think the Foo Fighters have to be there. I think so because the longevity and the impact too. Like they've never gone even away. when they wanted to go away because there was that like that phase where like. We're going to be done for a while. Sometimes you got to, you know, I think Dave's quote was like, sometimes you got to put things away and then not look at it for a while. And they put like an album out a year later. So it's like they just they have it in them to just keep 
producing stuff and, and, and putting stuff out and, you know, touring and, and they don't, you know, they don't, and they come up with different things. The Sonic Highways idea, even if that album, I, I thought that album was okay. It was good. It was some good songs, but like, they're always trying things different and they're still creating great rock music. The, the Sonic Highways one is the only one that breaks my heart because I was under the impression that it wasn't just the lyrics that were going to be influenced by the places that they were in. I thought the music would too. And I guess somebody brought it up months after it came out and Dave sort of like scoffed at it. Like, oh yeah, we would have like, you know, uh, a Bayou sounding song from New Orleans and this and that. And I mean, if there's any band that could have pulled that off, it was them. So in the New Orleans song, they did incorporate some of the band there the the marching band music i don't think the music reflects the towns like there's no there's not a washington dc i mean i guess that would have been a little more of a punk sound you know sounding song or, or seattle well the seattle song is kind of depressing so yeah. i mean it's sub uh subterranean uh it's a it's a very melodic acoustic song but yeah I, I, that album was really good the album to me that gets no play from them outside of the pretender echo silence patience and grace so many good songs that sound, you know, that are just so like Summer's End, track seven, by the way, is such a catchy rock song that just like nobody, they never played it live either, by the way. No one knows about. And, you know, if you go on, there's nothing left to lose. Gimme Stitches is one of the great songs. And they said, he said they performed it twice live, twice. Once because a, a, another band member of another band came in and was like, that's my favorite song you guys ever wrote. And he's like, well, we got to play it now. We never played it before live, so we played it, and then they played it like some kind of like parking garage tour they did as like you know as another band. But they have so many songs like that where it's just like, man, that was such a great song. It wasn't even a hit, and they killed it. They just they wrote that song almost by accident. It's a afterthought, and it's a great rock song. I, that's the album that has, but honestly, I think right and come alive. But, yeah, that's that's Echo Sounds. Yeah, yeah, and th so that's the album that I was thinking of because they did the electric acoustic double album, and to me, that was the perfect example of the combined genius of of that in one album. What that what that album consistently does with almost every song is typical Foo Fighters. Every ninety percent of the songs in that album start slowly and they build up to like a screaming finale. And that's kind of like, that is Foo Fighters to a T, where it's build up, build up, build up, bang. And, and that album was a perfect example of that. Yeah, and you had mentioned the their live performances and stuff. To this, see, if I had to compare the Foo Fighters to any specific act or group or whatever, this may sound like it's out of left field, but Tom Petty, having seen them both live, it's the same kind of energy there, the same kind of catalog. They go out, they play a three-hour show, the energy never never drops. And the storytelling in between, you know, and even during the, um, oh, I think it was the In Your Honor tour, they did this like mid mid concert acoustic set. Yep, so they, they started still do like, that. Yeah. So it started there. And I remember Drew, Drew Hester had a triangle solo. Like it was the most ridiculous thing, but it was so entertaining. And again, like Dave's just a natural showman. And his enthusiasm, I mean, how long has he been doing this? You know, it's it's unbelievable that even now he still has it. I think it's going to be a pretty somber tour, you know, the first one that they get out there without um, without Taylor. But look at another Seattle band, right? Alice in Chains, you would have thought once Lane Staley was gone that that was a wrap. And for a long time it was. But then William Duvall came in, and he's to me, is the perfect, you can't say replacement, right? But he's the perfect 2.0 singer for that band because he's got the vocal chops. He sounds like Lane when they're doing the older stuff, but he sounds like himself, and he's got enough of a. You could, a you've honestly, you could have fooled me at times. Yeah, yeah, you could have fooled me, and they did a great job uh, with making that change 
I mean, not, they didn't make the change. I mean, they had to make the change and in such a way where, you know, their legacy continued on and people still look forward to going to see them. And and they're still putting out quality, quality music. The yeah. last two albums that they did with him were just unbelievable. But see, that's where, like, I don't know. It's funny. You have the front man, so you have Chester and Lane. But then it's it's kind of the guys that fade into the background that are really you, you find out that they're really the the core of that band like mike shinoda is lincoln park I, I don't know about you but i thought that chester wrote breaking the habit and, and, f- and not only that like i didn't know until i saw a concert that mike played guitar and he does all those things he's not just like the, you know the rapper of the group you know he, he's the musician as well and that's that's again that's an element that made them incredible Right, right. And it, it, like, so for me, two of my favorite songs from those bands is you've got Breaking the Habit from Linkin Park and then Rooster from um, Alice in Chains. And I always just assumed that it was the singers who wrote the songs, but it wasn't. It was Mike and then and Jerry, you know? So, well, Brian, thanks so much for coming and hanging out. This was a great, great discussion. I'm glad we got to do this in person. Uh, anything you... you uh, well, what? here's what I'll say. In a few months, I won't be in New Jersey. I will come back and I want to do like a top... 2090 song song podcast. Oh, that'd like, be awesome. Top top your top 20, my top 20, how many match up? Um and we have to like almost like define. It's got to be like 1992 to like 1999, right? And I could make I could sit there and I can have that conversation for 6 hours. I, I, absolutely. And that's I've always wanted to do something like that, but there are very few people that I know who can and <laughs> you're one of them, uh, so I you know what? It's even now my, my <laughs> we make jokes like when I'm cooking in the kitchen or whatever, it's just like Alexa, play nineties rock. And it's just the same songs over and over and it's just it doesn't it doesn't get old to me. No, and, and I'm lucky my kids are that's their era too. I don't know how Lincoln Park's their favorite band, but they listen to all of it and so I there's no kids bop going on here, you know. They're they're lit fans, Lincoln Park, Foo Fighters, all that, which is great. Uh, any uh any podcasts or anything you want people to, to know about or anywhere they can catch well, your content? If you like horse racing, I do a Betting the Ponies podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. You can catch it on all your, you know, where you check your podcast, Apple, iTunes, um, Google, Spotify. So I appreciate that. But I'm just happy to sit here and talk music with you, man. Yeah. Uh, agreed, buddy. Thanks so much for finally coming through. And uh, thank you to everybody who's listening wherever and whenever you are.